Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Double Feature Podcast, where every week me and David bring two films together on our quest to marathon some flicks, kill a long weekend, and relax with some good movies. And we invite you along as we break these movies down at the Double Feature Picture Show. David, how you doing? What, Dean? I'm sorry. I fell asleep during the movie this week. It was kind of long. Oh, uh, just, just a little long? Just a little long? Yeah, yeah. Uh, enough to get several cycles of REM sleep. Um, what did we watch this week, Dean? Well, we're continuing on with our Screenwriters Month. Yes. Uh, and last week we did Judd Apatow. And I was like, we need to do somebody who's done a lot more cocaine than John Apatow. <laughs> so I picked um, Oliver Stone. And thinking, well, what movies from Oliver Stone should we do? I was like, well, we'll do JFK. That seems like an easy one. That movie won a lot of awards. And then we'll do Nixon. Anthony Hopkins is in that. He just won an Oscar. It'll be great. Little did I remember, <laughs> these both these movies are over three hours long. And I'm not lying. I started these. I tried to watch these back to back. I uh, I ran out of daylight to watch these. What, what about you, David? Did you manage to do the the true double feature back-to-back on these? Oh, I did the the true double feature back-to-back, and I ran out of daylight. Um, I I legitimately think I started one of these movies at 11.30 in the morning and didn't end until around about 7.30 at night. Uh, It was an interesting experience. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of thoughts on it, both good and bad. I, I don't know. I think we'll have plenty good and bad to talk about this week, which is always a mark of a good double feature. Mm-hmm. That being said, I probably wouldn't recommend this to anybody because of the, the the sheer amount of time that one has to put in. I mean, it's it's not like um, it's like our Pearl Harbor and Tor 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 episode because I think that was our that was our longest um, watch session, right? Because both those were three plus hours. Yeah, and it's like don't get me wrong, this is probably going to be a slightly more entertain or a lot more entertaining, really than. Mm-hmm that because it's not as dry oliver stone also directs both of these movies and his style is well it keeps on the edge of your toe or uh, it it really keeps it going it really like keeps I, in the, like i said we needed somebody who did a lot of coke and not a lot of weed yeah. and stone did a lot of both so these movies are weird and really fast ironically i I read a quote while reading through some of the you know i read while watching the movies at one point because i was so you know thoroughly enthralled by them uh you were you were like i need to fact check some of this jfk shit all right this this needs to be real yeah or i just needed something else to ground me in reality and what i came across this quote uh in which oliver stone was quoted as saying I don't think the cocaine was actually helping me write. <laughs> no shit. Really? He's the also he's the guy that wrote Scarface. So I mean, he's been enamored with this stuff for years. Yeah, no kidding. <sighs> he is the man responsible for mountains of cocaine in Hollywood, uh, and that would go on to fuel him for years to come. 
yes. I guess, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about the pairing we chose here. JFK is certainly the kind of the more marquee of the mm-hmm. two, uh, if anybody was to remember one. Uh, probably yeah. one of Oliver Stone's more well-known movies. It's probably this and Platoon are, are his biggest movies that yeah. mainstream audiences would know. I would say so. And then we have uh, Nixon, which was the the deep cut because it's the middle film in his president trilogy. The last one being W. Yeah, which uh, slow decline. I, that's for sure. You know, I'm I'm over here. I'm like I already lived through the W years. I don't I don't need a movie about it. It's fine. Yeah, Oliver Stone <laughs> certainly marked by a odd and complicated relationship with U.S. history. Yeah, and he's a very um, openly political um, filmmaker and also a giant Alex Jones-esque conspiracy theorist, judging by uh, some of the contents of these films. Certainly. I mean, like, you know, he comes from this generation of the the movie Brats a little bit. He's kind of buddy-buddy with all those guys. And Well, um, he after he got out of Vietnam, because he, he served over there in the right. Army... When he went to film school, Monsker says he was his, literally his film professor. Right. So he got in on that stuff on the ground floor. And well, more or less. Boy, did it really... I mean, let me let me read through the, the list of this movies that this man has just directed. Not just even wrote, which I know is supposed to be the focus of what's going on this week. But this is kind of an mm-hmm. interesting study for me and like the writer director as well, just as we had last week with Judd Apatow and the way he produces some of his mm-hmm. scripts. I think this is kind of going to be that interesting writer director uh, study. And anyways, um, this man is responsible for such movies as like we said, platoon wall street, which is also quite the film. Yeah. Born on the 4th of July, which is, you want to talk about political. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the doors movie which has its own lore. I, I, I watched that uh, for the Film Club podcast with my girlfriend because she loves The Doors. Fantastic. And, uh, a fantastic band. Love the music. And uh, yeah, Val Kilmer is great in that movie. The rest of the movie is so-so. Val <laughs> Kilmer is amazing, though. Well, and then on from there, we, he same year gets our hit JFK for the week. Mm-hmm. Uh, ruins, apparently, according to Quentin Tarantino, Natural Born Killers, which we will get into more next week. Nixon then comes after that, and I don't think the next, uh, probably like, okay, I know World Trade Center is something somebody, some people talk about, some people don't really talk about it. It stars mm-hmm. Nick Cage saving people inside the Twin Towers. Go figure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, get, get on him, Nick Cage, American hero. Yeah. We get then W, like you said, kind of the next thing after that is probably Snowden of note, but that was kind of like a... A snore fest, I guess, but I did. I remember when Snowden came out, and I don't think people were excited about the movie. They were just excited that Oliver Stone was directing something again. Yeah, it's that's a, what I remember. That was a weird one because it was like, like with things like JFK and Nixon, there's years removed from these things, and it's kind of interesting studies and especially opinionated studies of those events. That mm-hmm. one was always pegging me as like, that happened literally like a year or two before. <laughs> I was just like, yeah. I almost feel like it's still news to talk about. I, some, I don't know. It was I mean, it, it still is news. People are still um, talking about him. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, uh, why don't we break into talking about these two more in depth? We can go over a little bit of the log lines. You can get a little bit of the context, and then really dig into these epic, epic films. These behemoths of cinema. Yeah. Because um, we we're we just need to dedicate a lot of time to talking about these. So, David, give us the log lines for this week. JFK is about an obsessive district attorney that follows the trail of lies that surround the military cabal that may have carried out the mysterious assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And Nixon, without really going with the conventions of a logline, is a retrospective on the life and political dealings of President Richard Nixon, for better and worse. Because frankly, that movie defied all, it, it didn't really follow any movie plot logic other than just listing historical events sometimes out of order (laughs) yeah yeah nixon was a fascinating watch because like we're both you're you're um a big um advocate for the three-act structure in movies i assume i just think that there's certain elements that exist in all movies that you could certainly abide by Mm -hmm. and you know that's not necessarily true in all movies per se I would, I would go out on a limb and say that Nixon, it, this is going to sound stupid saying it out loud, if you squint, you could argue that Nixon, in a way, has a Citizen Kane-esque structure in which we're really just following a guy, not really kind a of... A story. Yeah. There's a story to it. It's just like not protagonist-antagonist kind of shit that we normally get. Yeah, and that's why... Um... Nixon is going to be interesting, but which do you want to talk about first? Because JFK is um, what I watched first. I also went through JFK first. We may as well start there. I mean, historically, that's what's going on first, right? I think so. So following the rule of chronology, let's talk about Kevin Costner and this crazy little uh, rabbit hole that he goes down, per se. Yes. Um. And this movie had a very interesting run when it came out, okay? So, um, this movie comes out in 1991. The biggest films of that year are Terminator 2. Uh, another Kevin Costner film, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Beauty and the Beast, because uh, the House of Mouse will always rise above. <laughs> and, oddly enough, Anthony Hopkins showing up in Silence of the Lambs, Naked Gun, Two and a Half, and The Fisher King, directed by our boy uh, Terry Gilliam, all come out in 91, Hmm. which is awesome. And if you're wondering about how JFK did in the award season, well, it was nominated for eight Oscars. It won two of them because Silence of the Lambs showed up and made a a five Oscar run and took all the good ones. But yeah, that's... But yeah, so there's a little bit of context on JFK. This movie was a pretty big financial success. It made a lot of money out of the box office. Not enough to break the top 10, but definitely enough to be a respectable showing. Oh, yeah. And it was hugely, like, it was very much critically loved. Some people had a lot of gripes with it for historical accuracies and inaccuracies. But it was it was nominated for eight Oscars and won two of them. So there you go. Yeah. But yeah, but David, where do you want to where do you want to start with with JFK and this 
labyrinth of a plot. Well, it's interesting because I think there's... It being Screenwriters Month, I will have a lot to say about the way the movie's written. But mm. right off the bat, there are two things that mark my like first impression with Oliver Stone and his movies. First of all, you have to acknowledge his very particular style. Mm-hmm. It's crazy editing techniques, very active and crazy camera angles and movements in the middle of scenes. Um, There's a change of film stock, film color. We go from black and white to color at almost random. Sometimes the format changes from like 35 to 16 to 8 millimeter throughout oh, yeah. a single like dialogue, which is weird. Yeah. In my first, uh, in, like my first, how would you call it? Impression? No, uh, the first time I saw an, an Oliver Stone film, that's what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. The first time I saw an Oliver Stone film was Natural Born Killers. So all that stuff was like jarring, but it made sense kind of in that movie. Mm-hmm. Because it's a, that's a wild story. Yeah. And in, in the context of this, JFK, that is... It was interesting because it's like, it also adds up to, like Dean and I were talking about before we started the show, this really breakneck speed to the editing um, mm-hmm. that for a three and a half hour movie really keeps you on a treadmill the whole time. I mean, you, there's not, I would say in JFK at least, not really mm-hmm. a slow moment and not for better or worse, but kind of just because it so keeps it going and going there's, and going. Mm-hmm. There's never a moment where we get to, like, stop and just process what's going on. Yeah. We're always being bombarded with information, with action, characters doing things, pointing things out. And it's... Ooh, it's a lot. I will say the the watch experience of JFK is very easy. You can turn it on, and if you're paying attention, it, it zooms by you'll probably miss a lot of stuff and I think it might require rewatches to really get everything not because of complexity but just because how it's how it's edited is just so fast yeah, but, yeah. especially because for the benefit it, it it adds to this this style that Oliver Stone is going for um mm-hmm. it being a conspiracy movie it, it certainly adds to the paranoia and kind of drama of the whole thing but you know I, I think i wrote down this note while watching the movie it's like reading an essay while being dragged behind a chariot uh you, you yeah. will the the dump of information that it requires in any scene combined with the fact that this is not a very action heavy movie it's kind of we're going to go here and talk about this piece of the case then go over there and talk about this piece of the case and every now and again we get something a little bit, but then it really is just marked by somebody talking about another piece of the case, just a little bit more hyped up this time. Yeah, it's a lot of... Okay. Um, This movie is... It's like a spiral, right? It just... It starts as something where it's like, okay, I can, I can get what's going on, and then it spirals into these weird conspiracy holes... That border on like YouTube rants. Like that, like the closing argument, though, you know, very engaging and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense, is absolutely something a YouTube video 
talking about the conspiracy, it would be that verbatim. Oh yeah. And it's just like I'm I'm digging for the narrative that's like beyond the assassination because I'm not I'm pretty I'm I'm pretty sure the only reason Oliver Stone is is making this film and is writing it is not to tell the story of Jim Garrison, the um Kevin Costner's character struggling with coming to terms with the possibility his country has betrayed its people and killed Kennedy. It's way more concerned with, hey guys, check out this shit I read on 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 the web. Like, yo, this it's a it was a coup d'etat, guys. Like, hear me out here. I made a three hour video about it. Yeah. Like I I was I was like actually kind of trying to figure out what I was supposed to care about a little bit. Yeah, I think this film does a lot better job of, like, focusing on the whole plot of everything, whereas uh, kind of a preemptive note about Nixon is there will be a little bit better job done about sympathizing with the main character of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with your assessment that, like, Jim Garrison as a character, although deeply interesting, is yeah. not really, like, at any point given a proper moment's notice of let's build up the person and then go through the case they they have all the elements there because there's the whole thing with like his wife and the kids and him being obsessed with the case and they attempt it but it's just and and something else his kids never age over 10 years of him investigating this yeah that uh, now that i think about it although the the whole this is uh, i guess the one gripe i would have about this movie to this point frankly i that was the one thing I found it hard to follow is the jumps in time because this does go mm-hmm. over from 1963 in the assassination. Then we all of a sudden there's just three years where Jim Garrison does not think about the case at all. But then yeah, it's just all of a sudden on a flight convinced that this is the new thing that's going to obsess his life for the next, I guess that would, because the, the final trials in 69, right? I believe so. Yeah, the final trial. Well, the trial that they actually go to court with to try and convict Clayshaw of conspiracy to kill Kennedy. I believe that's in '69. Yeah, so that that's a whole other three years of his life that he's just gonna randomly be like, "Nah, I'm gonna devote every all of my time to this." So I don't know. It, it that that was. I guess if I had to go on out on a limb and say that doesn't really matter. Yeah, I guess not. But there is some part of me that's like it would have been a lot more convincing all the way through um, if we had that. Because the the case itself, carrying you through the other, I guess, three hours of the content that he provides mm-hmm. us, is it's pretty, you know, it's enthralling. There's a lot to dig through. There's a lot with just a cursory knowledge of what the JFK assassination was. A lot that you mm. could be interested in and, and make drama with. Dean is kind of apparently our <laughs> resident conspiracy uh, conspiracy theorist, and I, I'd be interested to know yeah. what your assessment of the factual nature of all this is. Because I think the one thing that I do like about Oliver Stone, as he puts in Nixon, mm-hmm. he he certainly is aware of his dramatization and opinionated views of the events. Yeah, I I think Oliver Stone is very self-aware that he um has a a tendency to create, 
to have creative liberties for an engaging narrative. Um, and I should probably also prefix that, yeah, I at one point I was one of those like people who was bored during COVID times and was like, I'm gonna try and solve the JFK assassination because I haven't done anything in three months. <laughs> so I got really caught up on this. And um, yeah, this movie plays fast and very loose with um, historical facts to a high degree. Um, uh, the probably I'm trying to think of the biggest one because there's a few. Uh, you know, um, so Kevin's Bacon, Kevin Bacon's character in the film, he plays the um, gay hustler who informs Garrison that oh Dave Ferry and um clay shaw were in this weird sex thing going on and he was there at a party and overheard them talking to oswald and the conspiracy and all that stuff yeah yeah that guy doesn't isn't isn't real he's not a real person there was a real person who gave that testimony and he gave it and i quote under hypnosis and with the assistance of truth serum he was able to give that testimony yeah um follow-up is the other weird things because um people always conflate the fact that oswald could never have made a shot from the book depository because well there's a tree in the way not taking into account that when the first shot was fired kennedy was out of line of of shot from the tree so he was able to see him from up there the tree didn't matter yeah and also, it's 88 yards away. I don't know if you've ever handled a firearm, David, or a BB gun. But you can make an 88-yard shot at a high angle with a with a bow. Like a bow and arrow. That's a reasonable... It's a far shot with a bow and arrow, but with a rifle, you can make that. Yeah, well, the interesting thing there, too, is like, I you know, even just a cursory knowledge of mm-hmm. firearms out of the way. I've been to the site in Dallas. Yeah. And... Frankly, the book depository, I'm I'm not joking, you could see it clear as day in film in the film. They they shoot at the the location. I think they spent like a million dollars or two million dollars recreating Daily Plaza as it was in sixty three. Which is kind of a steal when you think about it. Like that's that doesn't seem like a whole lot of money to get one of your like most key sets uh retrofitted to work for the film. I'm wondering how much it actually changed because I think the book depository was kept as is. Yeah, I mean, since the time, I think, for, and everything else was probably just, yo, we're gonna retouch everything up to make it look good again. Yeah, like uh, I went there in I think 2017 uh, on a trip, and frankly, from what I saw in the film versus now, not that much different. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. a little different since 1991, but. Yeah, like the the book the book depository itself, that building is literally like there's a street corner and it's the the first building on that street corner, and then you could probably walk thirty seconds to the spot where the the shot has been fired. It, it, what's interesting, uh, there are white X's painted in the street by the city, mm-hmm. not just like randomly. And people go out there when there's no traffic and just take photos standing on the X, like JFK died here. Or, frankly, there's X's literally at the points of impact. It's kind of bizarre, but... Yeah. Yeah, for the most part, it, it, it's the same. And um, eerie spot if you ever get a chance to go to it. 
Mm-hmm. But I, I could totally see, you know, at least the, the fatal shot being fired by Oswald. This is the kind of interesting thing that the well, film presented is like this whole idea mm-hmm. that multiple angles would have provided different impact points and all this crap. Well, the, the that's the thing, because they're not. OK, here's the here's the thing. There are historical inaccuracies in the film, much of it dealing with the with figuring out if Clay Shaw and David Ferry have if they were involved at all, because the trial was real and they acquitted Clay Shaw after an hour of deliberation. And the case that the um, attorneys actually had was super weak. And um, also how he, he goes about the trial is also not accurate at all because imagine, imagine Alex Jones ranting about JFK's assassination. That was basically Jim Garrison's um, thing. That was, from from my understanding, I haven't seen transcripts. From my understanding, but yeah, um, a lot of it's true. Some of like a good chunk about Oswald not being on the sixth floor. He was seen in the break room at certain times. There was a guy up there having his lunch like twenty minutes before the the shooting. That stuff's true. The stuff where it's like, oh, there's another shooter, and how the impact wounds look. That shit looks about accurate. That's the fucking problem with this movie is they get a lot of creative liberty because it's a fucking movie. It's not a court document. They can say whatever the fuck they want. Yeah. So, yeah. Is, is this movie historically accurate? Kind of, sort of, if you look at it at the right angle. Is it true? Fuck no. Actually, the who the fuck knows is more like it. So, yeah. Everybody, everybody involved is probably long dead. What's interesting is that the movie makes this point at the end. You know, there's like this long, almost Mr. Smith goes to Washington-esque climax to the film where instead of reading a bunch of letters from boys who want to go to a boys' camp for 40 minutes, mm-hmm. Kevin Costner goes on this political patriotic rant for 40 minutes. It's, you know, yeah. it, it, albeit he at the same time listed a lot of facts about the case and you, it is a, a legitimate deliberation almost. To the point mm-hmm. where it's like, if you listen to it from the the perspective of one of those, from somebody in the courtroom, you, you kind of do get a little convinced. I was, at least. And then the, yeah. he breaks into this kind of like, you know, pathetic, like, uh, America, patriotism, we have to find truth or else how can we trust the government, blah, blah, blah. Which who knows if that was true. But it is, I will say that was a, a legitimately emotional point in the film. Um but the, the most catching fact of all of that to me is that the, the facts of this case, like a lot of things have been released lately, will be released in 2029. Dean, we got eight years. We're, we're Actually, fun fact, we're not even that far away because I don't know why he did this, but one of our, uh, our former president, he who shall not be named, he released all that shit in like 2017, 2018, something like that before he, yeah. um, yeah, he, he got an office and then they, cause I guess as a, as the president, you're in charge of, of like doling out this shit or you can have executive order to dole this shit out whenever you want. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, fuck it. And he released all of it. As far as I know, I think it, I think he released all the documentation, which more or less 
is interesting. Uh, it's a lot of fucking legal docs that I ain't fucking reading. I'll put it like that. Somebody, somebody will probably, you could probably go out there and find something about this. But uh, yeah, that was kind of the interesting thing that would think about where I was like, oh, we're almost there. And back in 1991, that felt like such a long way away. Probably, yeah. especially in 1969, where the characters are. Um, oh, yeah. I guess, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the writing of the movie for a moment, aside from historical accuracy, because yeah. we, we kind of talked about how there's a lot of dialogue and how they take creative liberties with it. But the striking thing to me is that, like I said before, this movie is very, it's very light, honestly, mm-hmm. when, when, you, when it comes to action. There's not a whole lot of, like, you know, a beautiful mind chasing... Uh, chasing a man through an alleyway with communists chasing after him when he's trying to figure out the codes to figure out location. You know, it's very, I don't know. There's a weird paranoia to this movie that is mm-hmm. not really backed up by any a whole hell of a action. lot. Yeah. Um, a lot of the movie is just dialogue. The, it's good dialogue. I, I don't get me wrong. But it's it's one of those things like um, when we talked about Judd Apatow last week, I feel like Judd Apatow starts with a very open kind of broad plot. And then he just kind of figures out the dialogue working with the actors. I feel Oliver Stone probably like spent, I don't know, six months to a year just working on the dialogue to just like I need to pump a lot of exposition really quickly. Yeah. And I need to break that up over this three hour behemoth. It's, it's just, it's a really interesting movie and it's hard to describe what's going on a little bit. Yeah. It's barely a story. So let me throw this one out there too, because I think I will reintroduce this point when we get to Nixon. Do you think that, even though JFK is lauded as like a, re- a legitimately good movie by critics, do you mm-hmm. think that this, and even if you want to mention Nixon now, do you think that both of these movies would have worked better as shows? Oh, because um, we asked that when we did Pearl Harbor, right? Yeah, and th- there was kind of a similar thought there where it's like, this is such a long movie that has so many different sections. That at some points I'm like they. I think if I remember our our point correctly in that episode, you could even just take those half hour sections that are pretty much all separate from each other and make them episodes akin to a band of brothers or whatever. But it's like this movie feels maybe a little less possible in that respect because it's mm-hmm. it's a long thread that's fairly connected all the way through, and yeah. it comes together for you know following a character and com- accomplishing the goal and all the classic markers of a movie. But I, you know, I'll be interested to what, see what we say about Nixon in that respect, because I think there was more of an argument there. Yeah. Well, well, JFK, I could see it being a series only if Oliver Stone wasn't directing it. <laughs> and that's not, and that's not an offense to Oliver Stone. He's a, he's, he's a fine director. It's just that, I feel like the way he put the movie together in in the edit with some of the camera work things like that 
it would make it incredibly jarring to try and watch this in one hour segments. Yeah. With like a week or maybe even a couple of days in between. It would be a little jarring. But I kind of see where you're coming from because this movie is a, is a web of characters. It's a web of plot lines. It's a web of all these things that are going on that we're trying to follow. And, you know, like, and I'm not, I'm pretty sure he does it well. I, I like that. I'm saying I'm pretty sure when I'm trying to make an argument here. But I'm, I'm pretty sure he juggles these really well. I don't think I got lost because of the script. I feel if I got lost, it was because of the editing choices. Is that, is that valid? Yeah. I think is all the information on, it basically is all the information on the page for me to catch up on this. I think you're valid in saying that. I personally, I, I kind of like his his style and his editing and his camera work and all that. I, I don't know. There's something about it that does draw me in. Um, but I'm not surprised by anybody that would get lost in it because it's way different from any, any traditional way of shooting a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and for next to no reason, I mean, sometimes there are it's almost like abstractionist at certain points where it's like he make Nixon. This actually happens a lot more surprisingly enough. JFK, there are more legitimate reasons why he makes certain choices because it's like, for example, there's a, there's a moment in the movie. It's hard to label what's earlier on because again, it might've been an hour in the movie at some point And that doesn't feel like yeah. early on quote unquote, but there's a, it's, mo- it's a little awkward. Yeah. There's a moment early in the movie where they're all going to, to lunch kind of getting everybody together for the case, talking about specifics. And like you're going around the table in kind of this like sliding motion with canted angles and and switching everything. And it kind of comes with the the accent of like when they mention a specific or important note about building their case. It like acts as like a exclamation to that point. And it's kinda you know, I, I kinda like that in the middle of a scene. Um I don't know. It, it'll certainly be interesting to talk about that style for Nixon because it's if you want to talk about a movie that was interesting. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, well, here's the thing. I I like Oliver Stone's like di- like directing style. Like the choices he's making, they're bold choices. Yeah. I like directors who who make a choice and fucking stick with it. But my my thing is. When they're doing their monologue, their monologue explanations of things, mm. um, I believe like um, when Donald Sutherland, um, the the character of X, when he does his thing and is describing how the U.S. government created a coup d'état, oh, yeah. for and that's why they're they killed um, Kennedy because they wanted to get into Vietnam and and some other things and that no one really said a go on it it was just mentioned and it kind of snowball it's very weird yeah and he's going on on it's a 16 minute monologue and they're cutting between him oswald him in the past at like the bay of pig stuff back to david fair and clay shop training at the bay of pigs and they're cutting back to oswald another fake oswald places in power in the government archival footage of lbj 
it's a 60 minute sequence that cuts between like four or five different plot lines as this guy's trying to explain hey here's what happened and this is why kennedy was killed and that point is probably stands out the most to me as being the most densest part visually audibly like um auditorially and it's just hard to it, it's one of those parts where I probably have to watch it twice when I watch this movie, just so I'm like, okay, do I have all the information? Okay, cool. I can get to the next part of the movie and, and be secure knowing I know what's going on. Yeah, I can I can sympathize with that because there's like this pseudo documentarian element to Stone's work that is, mm-hmm. frankly, uh, how would I put it? It's it's just kind of like inside itself i don't know like it's uppity a little bit where you know, it's like we we kind of get it as an audience it's like you listen you don't have to go through the whole of the kit like of all of the facts in order to tell a story that's not what telling a story is about and that i certainly agree with it kind of goes back to this point about like the the main character you know cosner's never really given a point to really flesh out the character beyond the whole relationship with the case and what it means for being scared to live in America. But, mm-hmm. you know, there is a lot of drama to be desired there that's taken up by these long and jarring documentary sequences. I don't know. Cause it's kind of interesting too. If you remember this, there was a little bit of this element in uh way back, way back when we did the five bloods. Oh yeah, that's right. And it's weird because I remember we did that episode and we didn't have a lot. I can't remember. I, I'm pretty sure we didn't have a lot of great things to say about the five bloods. We agreed it was a good movie, but it was like an okay Spike Lee movie. I don't, we don't, I think we agreed it wasn't like a great one, like do the right thing. Yeah, but I think, I think so. I would, I would say that the five bloods probably handled it better these like pseudo documentary moments than JFK did simply because they were very quick, simple, easy, historically factual things. They, they throw in at points when the plot deemed it necessary to explain them. Yeah. JFK it's two and a half hours of it explaining a historical event. Or even I would go back and say something like Kubrick's um, full metal jacket. Mm-hmm. uses kind of pseudo documentary things but it uses it also for style and commentary not just information dumps which is kind yeah. of that's what i would say is like as a lesson here is if you're going to do it do it that way because frankly if you have to go out on a limb and explain your movie as you're making and we're watching the movie it should be a sign <laughs> but you know that's that's neither here nor there because again this movie made 200 million dollars on a $40 million mm-hmm. budget or something like that. So I, what, yeah. what room do I have to talk at that point? And, and it's the other thing where this is not a bad movie. Oh no. This is a, this is a really good movie. Yeah. It's, it's the problem with it. Just, it's such a different movie than most movies that make $200 million. That it's just really jarring when we're like trying to discuss it as a, as a piece of like cinema. Because it's like, 
it's not really interested in telling a, a, a traditional narrative. There's no like character arc, rise, and downfall. Jim Garrison, for the most part, is the same righteous, I'm, I'm searching for the truth and trying to find justice in this chaotic world as he's the same guy as the beginning and the end. There's no dramatic rise and fall for him. It's just, you know, Babe in the Woods finding his way out, which is cool. It's fine. You know, I like these Odyssey kind of films. And the Odyssey is engaging. It's interesting. I just, I don't know much of the deeper uh, thematic elements, elements Oliver Stone's like digging with. It, it might be something I'm just missing it. No, I, I pretty much agree with you. I mean, like you said, it's, I don't know. We could, we could harp on forever about how that character was never really given a, a moment to like explore his own life in, in the middle mm -hmm. of it. There's like we said, there's two moments I think overall in a three and a half hour film. That's just not enough. Um, and should frankly, I mean, speak to why maybe you might just get rid of those and have his wife just support him the whole time. I don't know. You know, uh, balance. I don't want to have to, <laughs> I'm not certainly not going to go through and fix a three and a half hour plot. That's for sure. Yeah, fuck um, no. Fuck no. And also, I don't even think we could. Yeah. Because it feels like all the elements that Stone wanted to talk about are, are in the movie. Pretty much. But what we could talk about, though, is the greatest eyebrows in cinema being um, hot glued to Joe Pesci's forehead. Because I didn't realize this. Because I haven't seen JFK in, like, I don't know, fucking five years. Something like that. No, no, I did watch it while I was on my conspiracy kick in in quarantine, so like a year ago. Um, but this cast is fucking stacked. Oh my gosh, yeah. I didn't realize that. Like, okay, I want to to go through this. We have Kevin Cosner, Gary Oldman, uh, Jack Lemon, which from the apartment, my boy. Uh, we have Walter Matthau. We have. Um, oh God, uh, uh, I'm actually looking at this list and it's insane. We have Michael Rooker. We have, um, Kevin Newman, Bacon. Kevin, oh, Kevin Bacon. How can I forget? Joe Pesci, Tom Lee Jones. And it, Asner it just, was a surprising one for me. Yeah, that's really surprising. And it, and it just goes on and on and on. I, I think Vincent D'Onofrio is in this for like five seconds oh yeah as a as a eyewitness that is in for one scene and john like holding candy a that was another one that was like whoa also it's playing one of the most interesting characters in the movie yeah you know good old dino man where he's talking with that hip you know skiddly do dialogue it's great it's yeah. awesome but and it it just goes on there's so many people in this movie and it's insane and my question is there anyone here that stood out to you because this, this, you know, Costner was was given an Oscar not for this film. I was wondering, it's like, I don't think he's the best, the best part of this movie in um, terms of like characters. I, and I'm sure it's probably for that final monologue. That the final monologue feels like an understatement. The, right. you know, I feel like that's really where they're giving him the nod. I like Costner in this movie. I think, I think, Costner is a very particular actor. But mm -hmm. this role works for him, and especially in the way Stone shaped it. Um, a lot of people like make parts in this film that don't actually do much beyond what I would expect them to do. 
Mm-hmm. Jones at times is a little interesting. It's out of his element in my mind, but it, at the same time is like, okay. Um, Lemon was an interesting uh, addition to this that I would, I was thoroughly enthralled by. Candy as well. I was like, he... He is so different than any other movie I've seen him in. Yeah. Uh, you know, kind of the one guy I was really impressed with in this movie... Well, really, the two of them, because they're kind of the, the right and left-hand man. Uh, Michael Rooker, who's a little bit more well-known, was pretty good. And then opposite oh, yeah. of him, this this guy, J.O. Sanders. Mm-hmm. I really like him in this movie. And he's, aside from this, kind of a nobody. Like, I, I read a little bit about him. He does some off-Broadway stuff. And has been in a couple other things. But, yeah, I, that was one of my favorites, uh, honestly. Um I've seen him as a character actor in something else. I can't remember for the life of me, but he's he was legitimately really good in this. I don't think there's actually a bad performance in the film, except for Joe Pesci's wig. But I think that was on purpose. Yeah. Uh, well. Okay. So here's a here's a little bit of J. O. Saunders for you. He's mm. in the day after tomorrow. I I've seen that film. That's probably the movie I saw him in. Maybe so. Angels in the Outfield. Another daring. I've uh, I've seen that film. That film's awesome. Yeah. Go Angels. Um, JFK is certainly a note in this. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of it. I think that really is it. I I could go through all these titles, but it's like you've never heard of any of these films. Um, for well, maybe for richer or poorer, probably, but the Big Green. Uh, oh. I've seen that one. That was a kid's movie. I remember that one. That I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if you've seen that one. Uh, the Matchmaker, Tumbleweeds, Kiss the Girls. Okay, I don't know what all these are. But a long, long story short, uh, really liked a little bit of Saunders in this one. I thought he played a good guy. Really, I, I think I liked the pair of Saunders and Rooker together. Um, they played really well off of each other. Yeah. Especially with um, Costner in the middle of that. I would really enjoy to see, well, I guess this is now 20 years after the fact, but I mean, I would really have enjoyed to see them in more stuff together. That would have been like a very interesting, like dynamic kind of thing to, to go with. Yeah. But yeah. Um, any other thoughts you want to go on with JFK? Uh, I don't know. I mean, like, I guess a final note about Stone's filmmaking that I, I especially noticed and enjoyed in this is, like, I like the non-traditional lighting techniques that oh yeah add to, like, the elements of what makes this look a little different, a little older, at times just outright more dramatic. A lot of what I noticed was, like, they bounce life off of tabletops in scenes where people yeah. are around, which is an interesting method to me. Or will straight up just like light, light people in certain ways. Really, you'll just get like flat white on them. Um, All the lighting in this is oh, the lighting when he's going stylized is overly stylized. It's like super harsh. Yeah, and not like noir harsh where there's a lot of like dark deep shadows. It's like they're shining just floodlights at people. And I would even but argue I, that I, at at certain points, that's kind of like a style that has been taken when doing these kind of like 1960s period pieces sometimes mm-hmm. if, you, if you're doing frankly this is going to be a weird one to point out but call of duty did this in spades in their you know um yeah i yeah I, I played the shit out of black ops yeah. i know what they're talking about 
but you know, I, I feel like if you do a story about the 1960s American government, it's going to mm. look something like an Oliver Stone movie a la JFK now. Yeah. Now, th- this next one we're going to talk about is a, just a whole can of corn. And I, yeah. I think we'll have plenty similar to talk about it and even more. Going to move on to Nixon right after this. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to part two of our double feature picture show. And now let's talk about Nixon. All right, David. So Nixon, Anthony Hopkins, Oliver Stone, a shit ton of cocaine. What are, what the fuck? What's this movie? Go. What's going on here? Well, this is kind of more a biographical movie, basically. I mean, this movie, in similar ways to JFK, doesn't really follow a traditional storyline. We're basically just getting the events of President Richard Nixon's life in a certain order that Stone chooses, and you're just along for the ride. I mean, that's pretty much what what, what I can say in summation about it. Mm. Everything after that feels almost like you just kind of have to experience it. Um it it it's um it's the rise and fall of probably one of the most disliked and misunderstood presidents in US history a little bit because like the rise and fall is an interesting term for it because the mm-hmm. movie kind of starts with this bookend opening kind of it's kind of like stone just was like okay here's some bookends i'm also gonna rip off the back cover you know (laughs) it's like because we don't start at the beginning of nixon's life but you know a a good like life biographical drama to to point to all the time is barry lyndon Mm -hmm. by the great stanley kubrick where you literally start at the beginning of the story of the character and end at the end of the story of the character and it's up to you as the filmmaker to make the through line interesting as we go chronologically through a person's life. Stone does not do that because he loves non-chronological filmmaking, which is fine. It makes for some interesting transitions at times. But altogether, I was fairly confused the first part. Of, again, because the movie's so long, I can't even quantify it. The first part of the film, I was just kind of like... Okay, where are we? What's going on? I I could kind of I could kind of see where you're coming from cuz the movie, okay, so JFK I said played fast and loose with its like historical events. Yeah. At least it's in chronological order. Anytime we do a flashback, it's very obvious they're talking about things in the past, but in narrative we're straight straight and narrow. Yeah. In this, we're jumping from Nixon as the president and then back to him in the 60s, like, losing to John John F. Kennedy and his, like, humiliation of that. And we're following that for, like, 30, 40 minutes. And then we jump to him as, like, a little boy for, like, 20 minutes and then back to him as, like, a president. Then him running for president. We just jump around through his life very, very often and... Okay, I'll. 
I want to talk about the story because I feel I have a better grip on like what's going on here than with JFK. Okay. Because I, I like I said, Nixon is pro- is a very disliked president for like the scandals that happened under his under his presidency, and he's also like probably one of the most misunderstood presidents as like a person. Just right there, and the strategy the film takes to tell its story is trying to make Nixon as human as possible showing how insecure he is all the hardships he went through all the pressure he was under both from outside forces and from his own personal experiences and I'm not sure if the film's trying to demonize him or redeem him because it almost feels like this is this is almost a character assassination that's what a lot of people okay maybe not a lot of people but like nixon's family oddly enough the disney family some other members said this was like a character assassination of richard nixon because they neglected to show him as a normal functioning human being and the other half is trying to be like yeah he was a guy who just he had a hard fucking life and he got he clawed his way to the top and this is like what happens when you shit on everybody once you get there kind of thing. I don't know. It's like, it's a really weird thing. I just want to know, do you think this is a a movie that's trying to redeem him or demonize him? That's probably where I'm getting at. Yeah, because there's, I think I'll lean towards redeeming a little bit more, which mm-hmm. I think it's, Really, it's just like the other 40% of that 60% lean is me just being surprised that Oliver Stone actually likes Nixon at all to do this to him. Because based on JFK, I was not expecting Nixon to, or or Stone rather, to be at all sympathetic to the U.S. government. But somehow, some way, he made me care about Richard Nixon. Not really. I really cared about Anthony Hopkins. I told this to Dean because Anthony Hopkins is like, I look at him and I feel happy. I look at that face that sometimes makes really silly faces. And I just see him playing or trying to play because he looks nothing like him. Richard Nixon. And I'm like, ah, I feel bad for Anthony Hopkins. Then I remember he deserves so much better. And I'm like, I don't know if I really care about Richard Nixon. I'm more like the scene. Okay. There's a scene later in the film where Richard Nixon is having a bout of, I think, pneumonia or something. Um, oh, when his, like, um, when he starts coughing up blood? Yeah, and and there yeah. I was just like, God, I hope Anthony Hopkins doesn't die. Not, <laughs> I, I don't, because <laughs> I'm just like, ah, I don't know. That Well, that kind of goes to, um, like, Anthony Hopkins as an actor, right? Because this, this movie, I also, I forgot. This movie um, came out in 95, by the way, basically most of the crew that was on JFK came over to do Nixon with Oliver Stone. Sounds right. And uh, this was nominated for four Oscars. And it won zero. That's not surprising. Not surprising. This was also a box office flop. And this was the year that we got like Toy Story, Apollo 13, and 7. And this made like not a whole hell of a lot of money. It was actually received really well critically, but no Oscars. But to the point anthony hopkins was nominated for best actor for this movie and he got a lot of criticism 
because people said he wasn't actually playing Nixon, like the person. He was playing a caricature of Nixon made for the film. Do you think that's true? Like, is this, do you think this is an accurate portrayal of Richard Nixon, former president of the United States? No, I don't think it's an accurate portrayal because an accurate portrayal wouldn't come in such a stylized movie. It's it's just as, probably not quite just as stylized as JFK. And like, I do see too that like, Hopkins, all his mannerisms are like exactly what I would think Richard Nixon would act like. And they're used in very, very good ways, I think. But ultimately, I do think that he's playing a character, like they say, uh, so as to make it easier to sympathize with him and also at times easier to kind of understand Richard Nixon as a person. Because this is another mm -hmm. movie that's marked by a lot of dialogue. And yeah. I feel like in order to kind of opposite the problem we had in JFK, where like we didn't fully understand Kevin Costner's character by the end of it, other than just what he was saying. There are moments in this movie where it's like, like the mo there's a moment at the beginning where he's lost, I think, the California gub gubernatorial race, and he just starts playing the piano to interrupt his wife. That was a moment where I was like, okay, now I kind of am starting to get Richard Nixon as a person, otherwise other than what they're just like about to talk about in the scene but mm. basically my my review of that is that it it works to that benefit rather than being anything other than you know an accurate portrayal it's just supposed to make the audience understand better what stone's opinion of richard nixon is yeah and um i don't i don't know how much you know about president nixon um like i live down the street from like whittier like i said like i could i could walk to whittier high school like he went to high school there so mm -hmm. i've based on proximity alone i've i have have some cursory knowledge of the of the guy i had and, my prom yeah. at the nixon library oh oh my not great. fancy it wasn't great yeah yeah Listen, but yeah, I, it's not a very romantic situation to take the walking tour inside the house where Richard Nixon was born. So, you know, you know, but yeah, like, but knowing what I know about him and then watching the movie, they're, they're, the beats are theirs of his life. So I'm like, okay, I, I'll get that. But I really legitimately felt like really bad for him. Cause I it might be the how the film portrays it, and I again I have no idea how accurate his responses to the hardships in his life were, but he really came off as a guy who just got shit on his entire life and kept trying to dig himself out, and just dug himself to the top on accident almost. Like is that is that pretty much right? Cause they weren't lying. He was born on a dirt farm and, and basically just worked his ass off to get a scholarship to law school and that's the only way he made it out of California yeah so I think this is kind of one of the faults of the film at first is like there is a lot of interesting setup to that life like you were saying you know he grew up in 
uh, Whittier, California, only after their ranch had failed. Their family ranch failed in like 1922 or whatever. Yeah. Um, so they moved to Whittier as poor people. Uh, I think his dad then opened up like a grocery and a gas station and all this to, as a business. And yeah, Nixon, uh, they do show like the, the, the brothers dying and everything. They're kind of not very well. Um, the older brother, you do see more of the pain, whereas the younger brother, there's just kind of a scene where he's screaming while getting a shot in his back, and they're like, the infection's bad, and they never mention anything else. I Yeah, I have no idea what he actually died of, to be honest. Is, was it tuberculosis? Uh, I think the, the biography I read on Wikipedia, so this is extremely, extremely factual, is of course. he died of a short illness. I have no idea what that means. It, the, it seems oh. that the whole family suffered from lung issues, uh, mm-hmm. ranging from cancer to tuberculosis, what what have you. Phlombitis, um, pneumonia. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if that had anything to do with their life on the farm, but, you know, go figure. All in all, it, it's like there's a lot of interesting setup there that isn't placed at the beginning of the movie. It's placed throughout yeah and then opposite of this yeah i i also at times sympathized with this rock in a hard place political situation that stone was portraying nixon as being inside of mm-hmm. albeit there are certain things that in richard nixon's political career where i'm like mm, maybe you did that to yourself a little bit, yeah. But, you know, there are certain scenes that, that mark that where I'm like, if there was a setup to this earlier in the movie to where, other than just in the scene, I'm understanding why this is a difficult moment for him, it could have been better. But so there's like a couple scenes. One in particular was when he's walking around the Lincoln Memorial and then there's that group of hippies that just happened to be off screen and then they're suddenly on screen and and he's <laughs> talking to them and then it cuts to him standing around no one just staring at the lincoln memorial and you're like is is richard nixon having a mental breakdown trying to reason the vietnam war and there's certainly point like stone alludes to him having alcohol issues well that not so much allude. They allude to him and his wife having prescription drug issues. They allude yeah. to Nixon certainly losing his mind at points. Um, but that that scene in particular was interesting because like, there was an interesting argument going on inside his head there where it's like the public does want things to end instantly. And as president, he should have power to do that. Although historically, that has never been the truth. Yeah, I I feel people assume the president has way, way more power than they actually do. Yeah, because it's like if the power had if the president had that much power, just as much bad shit would happen as the good shit that you want to happen. Yeah, uh, if a president that, could just snap his fingers and end every any war he wants, he can also start any war he wants. Yeah, and it's yeah. just like, well, that's kind of the situation that had happened. That that, that actually was Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Uh, but you know, I it, it and then there's opposite of that, him showing kind of remorse and trying to lead the youth in a way where he's like, I'm not trying. But it, it's one of those things where it's like, again, that's more Anthony Hopkins portrayal than it is me actually feeling sorry for Richard Nixon because I have no clue if that's how he actually acted. Uh, 
it's it's very stylized to the point where it's like uh, i don't know there's it, another- it was so stylized you couldn't invest as him as a real human being he was he was now strictly a character yeah it's like if if this was like a fictional president named bill garfield mcgee or whatever it's like i don't know who you know random insert president but if it was if it was like a random fictionalized president i might or i would totally believe in this scene because it's a real person that has a very real stigma around them i don't Mm -hmm. know it was i was just sitting there like yeah but would richard Nixon really say that to a group of hippies i don't know I, I right. don't, uh, there was also a scene in which he's in a re- this actually I'll call back to another episode in a moment about this there's a scene in which he's in the room with a bunch of oil magnates who are trying to get him to keep going with the Vietnam War but he's like gonna he's gonna stick up to the me- the men in the dark room and tell them no this is where I end things I don't care about your military industrial complex which ironically Dwight D. Eisenhower warned everybody about which is yep. weird. Mm-hmm. Um, all that aside, he's a military man. He knew. Yeah, that's true. Uh, all that aside, first I want to call back to a a movie we've covered on the show, The Campaign, and be like, oh, now yes. I understand those scenes. Because <laughs> part of me was uh, like, those scenes always felt so under under inspired in in some mm-hmm. ways. Now I know exactly what they're inspired by, and I think they're even lazier. Oh, oh, for the campaign? Yeah, because like it, it's the exact same thing. They're all sitting in a room with fireplace, sipping scotch. More nefarious things are going on, uh, especially after that Studebaker convention. Yikes! But yeah, I don't know. I don't know where that point was leading me. That just like gave me flashbacks to another thing. Speaking of flashbacks, uh, a lot of flashbacks in this movie that come in the form <laughs> of. Richard Nixon has ghosts. Yeah. He's haunted by, like, the memory of his mom. And, like, she wanted so much from him. And he, like, he became the fucking... He was the son of a failed farmer and became the president of the United States of America. Fucking rags to riches. And he still thinks he's not good enough to please his mother yeah yikes i don't know that's a red flag right there's certain parts of this where i'm like it feels like falling up and there's certain parts of this where i'm like that is that is a sad reality to live in especially when his wife is just who she is portrayed as in the movie because again i don't really know what mrs nixon was like but Boy, if she was even half as bad as she was in this movie, it's like I can understand why one man would be driven to drink. From my, uh, from my understanding, because I I looked up criticism for this movie and all that stuff, uh, his kids were alive and saw this movie, and they said, "You can say what you want about our dad, but our mom was never like that." Can you, can you not, sir? Because apparently they had a very like. It's really weird, but Richard Nixon had, like, a really happy marriage. Like, him and his wife were very, like, affectionate and nice to each other. She was, like, the only person he was with that. So, I I don't know if it was, like, you know, they're portraying all the hardships of their marriage and condensing it into the most stressful moments of his life. But from my understanding, she was a very pleasant person. 
I could be wrong. I, I only read like a couple of articles about it. So yeah, I don't know. Because that's the other thing I would like to point about this one, and maybe bring up a point I had in the first half of the show. This is basically like an information dump, even more than JFK, in that we're literally just getting a bunch of facts throughout the whole movie, kind of through the lens and funnel of Richard Nixon's perspective. But this is ba- this is basically like reading a novel at, at one point, where it's all the events mm-hmm. and, and things that were going on. I was just like, it's not really adding any dramatic base other than the moment, because it's just about his life. It's not about like a goal that's leading mm-hmm. to something. You were going to make a point. Actually... Because I'm reading um, the novel Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, the Quentin Tarantino's the book that came out. Yes. And when you said this is this plays like a novel, it it reminds me it does because it's like oh the characters playing out a scene and then they take like a two paragraph break to talk about how this situation reminds him of a thing in his past, and it's supposed to be like a character building thing, mm. which in a book is like super casual. Like that just that's in like every book. Halfway through a dialogue, a guy's like, after he said that, it brought me back to my time on the farm. And on the farm, my me and my dad, blah, blah, blah. And it just talks like that. This is the visual equivalent of that trope in, in like, fiction. Which is really weird. Because I, I don't know many movies that just take breaks mid-scene to give you flashbacks that are non-sequiturs. And then just overlay them on the scene and have them play out well there's dialogue it's it's very interesting yeah it's very unorthodox and at times makes for some interesting sequences like there's a moment kind of after he has a freak out about his mom it's kind of i think the last time we see mrs nixon on screen Mm. where they're they're talking and then there's like this moment where he superimposes like fire over mrs nixon when she tells him to burn the tapes. Yeah, and it's just like that. There's just odd moments where those like Oliver Stone esque editing choices actually act as like these metaphors in the that, like you said, would just pop up in the middle of somebody like explaining imagery. I don't know. It, it, it's it's frankly it's sincerely very odd, and the, this is, I think. Back to my point from the first half of the show, a movie where I would see this much more as a television show than a movie. Like, frankly, this, I feel like not only you would be able to make it about multiple presidents, which I'm sure Oliver Stone would have like a field day with because he did a whole nother movie about a president. Yeah. But it could probably get kind of boring for Carter and Ford, though. Ain't gonna lie. Those would be your off seasons, right? Maybe, and, you know, you don't have to do it for every president. It could just be, like, the major ones or whatever. But I just feel like there's so many different things going on here that don't exactly add up to the ending, other than that maybe you could say all the events and uh, character moments that have happened throughout the movie lead up to the way he accepts his resignation, which I guess is the point of the movie, but it's, like, Part of me, after a while, just even forgot that Richard Nixon resigned from his post uh, mm. and was expecting some like grand, dramatic, tragic death ending because that's how this movie portrayed his life. Yeah, it it it's really weird because 
if again if he was a fictional character oh he would die at the end of the movie because he's this guy that gets shit on his entire life until he manages to claw his way to the top and then do everything he can to keep it and that character is supposed to die after he gets corrupted but no richard nixon lived for another like fucking 30 years yeah it's like 81 like the year before the no 1994 i think is when he died 1994 yeah, yeah they he um he passed away right before the film actually i think he passed away when the film wrapped production yeah. i think he was alive when the film was being made i think question mark but yeah and um something that's just okay I'm I'm just trying to collect my thoughts on it because I think this would work better as a television series, just just letting it breathe more. But the point you made about it not coming up to the sum of its ending, I liked the ending kind of a lot because it felt like it finally paid off. At least to me, it did. Like all these character moments, all the moments of him like fighting and struggling with him himself mostly because i think at any point he could have just gone home and would have been strictly happier but that that wasn't nixon and that was his own downfall and i kind of like the ending i think the ending worked really well because it's just it's him finally like the only way he'll get sent home is in disgrace that's that's the only way this ends for him so yeah i guess i could see that summation i don't know you made this point about like uh i can't remember exactly what you said but they, it reminded me of this uh, this thing where there are parts uh in jfk as well that do this they're just like little pieces of information that are glossed over that i'm like that's like a huge whole thing like a cavernous thing that you could go down for another hour of this story that you don't even touch on because, like, there's certain things about... It's, this is all pretty much the negative stuff about Richard Nixon's presidency. And, you know, despite everything and however anybody might feel, there were positive things about Richard Nixon's presidency, such as he oversaw the Apollo 11 program and he created the EPA, which is mentioned once in this movie. And it's just, like, those certain things I'm like... You know what else is only mentioned once in this movie? Him, like, desegregating, like, that all too. schools in the, in America. And and those That's... are things that are just, like, those, because they don't add up to that, are just glossed over when I'm like, well, is that, like, really the sum total of a person? Which I guess goes to the subjectivity that Oliver Stone has and chooses not to go down, which I'm sure, to your point, probably is the reason that jfk doesn't look the same way to certain people mm. i don't know so that that's another reason i would be interested to see this as a show because it, you wouldn't look at richard nixon first glance and be like that guy created an agency that's supposed to help global warming you know it, it wouldn't peg you that way and it'd be interesting to know what the story behind that is but again maybe that's for a documentary or something it's something a totally different project that isn't mm. so much of a character study that is kind of a loose character study because again the real reason i watched this movie was for anthony hopkins not much else um, yeah oh i almost forgot so because the jfk is about a conspiracy and nixon 
we have the Watergate tapes, the missing 18 minutes, and he heavily implies it's talking about how the U.S. government assassinated Kennedy. Mm-hmm. I need to I need to know how much of that um, Oliver Stone is pulling straight out of his asshole, and how much of that is him trying to just like harken back to to guys I made JFK like four years ago, like like this. I swear it's all it's actually about a conspiracy connected universes. Yeah, because I'm also, I don't know very much about what is actually on the Watergate tapes, but there's just some part of me that's like, that's an odd 18 minutes to digress on in the middle of something else you're talking about. Even if it was a major part of your life, I don't know. I mean, honestly, judging, judging by what recent presidents have done and dodged being, um, like, removed from office... Yeah, I think Nixon probably could have dodged getting removed from the office with uh, with the Watergate stuff. TBH. But we're not a politics podcast, so we'll move on. Yeah. I don't know. I <sighs> guess a final note is um, some interesting actors that make appearance in this movie. Uh, Paul Servino was kind of interesting as Henry Kissinger. We got Bob Hoskins. That was turning. Paul Servino? Yes, sir. Holy shit! Because I was looking for Paul Servino because I'm like, oh wait, that's that's Paulie from fucking Goodfellas. Oh, okay. Because I saw his name at the beginning, I looked for him for the whole fucking movie. I couldn't find him. Yeah, he disappeared in that. Oh shit! A I love I love kissing. All right, uh, yeah. Ed Harris, Points. which is like the top built one of the top built names, and he's in this movie all maybe like three minutes. Uh, like I said, which is weird. Yeah, Bob Hoskins returning, which is interesting as J. Edgar Hoover. Mm-hmm. Um, Mary Steenberger was an interesting name. One name that I was kind of surprised by, mostly because of an odd cult fascination with that movie, mm-hmm. is Annabeth Gish from Mystic Pizza. <laughs> oh, God. I don't even know what movie you're talking about. Mystic Pizza and- is, an, is a fascinating... Listen, if, if when we get to the part where we suggest one of these movies, I'm going to suggest Mystic Pizza as the, the movie everybody goes and watches. Basically, there was a movie that had... Oh, fuck. Who was the... What's the name of the actress? Um, it, it's it's a stupid little movie. It's like a, a kind of a romantic comedy, but like it follows three sisters. They work at their family pizza shop. Uh, Julie Roberts, that's, that's the main actor in the movie. Uh, Vincent D'Onofrio is also in that movie, technically, if you want to go... If, it, or Matt Damon is also in this movie. This Fucking is what I mean Matt about Mystic Pizza, man. But it basically Jesus. falls like, you know, the, the formative romantic exploits of these three girls who work at a pizza shop in, in like, rural Pennsylvania or whatever, the, wherever the hell they are. You know, they're Italians and all this crap. Uh, fun little movie. I don't know. It's it, That was just an interesting person to recognize. Uh but yeah, I don't know. But how? Uh, what else could I say about Nixon other than that? I guess the film that happened for three and a half hours. <laughs> All right, let's get to the let's get to the end here, boys. The wrap up. We're bringing the two movies together. So, looking at these two movies together, what can we pull from Oliver Stone's writing? Good things, bad things, interesting things, ugly things. What do we got? Yeah, I don't know if there's going to be an overarching thing that we analyze about the writing per se. Um, I think we pulled an interesting thing out in this kind of novel-esque way he organizes the scripts. Mm. Especially the scripts are heavily argument-oriented. 
uh, JFK especially is all about the argument of proving the cons- the truth of the conspiracy theories surrounding that case. Nixon, you could also argue, is argument heavy in that it's supposed to try and get you to sympathize with the rise and fall of a man rather than looking at the whole and making your own opinion. Um, and I think there's certain things to carry away from that. I also think that a lot of this is just coming down to... It's fascinating to look at the writer who is responsible for the second version of Scarface, which is an American classic in, in these standards mm-hmm. that pretty much made his name. Yeah. And then... Brian the, De Palma directed yeah. um, a very good movie, and Oliver Stone wrote in a very good screenplay for that one. Yeah, and it's like... It's so fascinating to look at that and then looking at these, which are just wildly different uh, in certain ways. I don't know. I, I overall, I think what I would what I would say is like I, I said this to Neen. This is the br- blueprint for how to write the fastest long movie you've ever seen because the writing is implicit in the editing of the movie as well. The movie doesn't work if it's if it's written a different way but edited the same way. The movie doesn't work if it's written this way and then edited in a slower pace. So if you're looking to do that style, look to these two because, or maybe more JFK than Nixon, but you know, really interesting method to to how he organizes and and uses the writing in this movie. Yeah, and um, honestly, I would say you should if you're gonna do a a movie, like you want to do a biopic about somebody who's had a very complicated life and a complicated relationship with the public Nixon's actually a really good watch for that I think it actually handles like the essence of a person very well if not the facts of his life perfectly accurately it's a very good good showing but that gets us here David if you can only watch one this weekend what are you watching well, I'm going to keep true to my promise. I'm going to recommend Mystic Pizza starring Julia Roberts God, and Annabeth Stab me with a spoon. And others, including Matt Damon and Vincent D'Onofrio. I mean, no, I, I would probably choose JFK over again. Um, really? I think it's the better movie. I, I liked Nixon by the end of it. Uh, again, more really for Anthony Hopkins than anything else. And I mm-hmm. think that's why I would go back to JFK because it is like a thoroughly interesting movie. Kind of to your point, it's more interesting because it's kind of organized like this conspiracy YouTube video that yeah. is designed to keep your attention for the the runtime because there's no breaks. But in that way, it just makes for an interesting experience um, that is slightly inspiring. The only reason I think I would probably go back to Nixon other than Anthony Hopkins is the I don't know how we didn't mention this John Williams score that is at times very reminiscent of Star Wars a little bit yeah um but honestly I I might have to disagree with you because this a hot take of the day uh JFK is the better movie I like Nixon so much better okay it's it's one of those movies where by the end of it I dug the shit out of that movie i was it's really a thing where all the pieces might not work great 
but at by the end of it and it's all stacked together it it's such a good movie granted jfk 100 way more way more interesting way faster paced will keep your attention beginning to end and nixon is really a movie that pays off by the end and it doesn't it's a slow burn even for even for it being like really fast and oddly cut together and it spirals into more crazy shit as it goes on yeah but i think it was just a fascinating character study of 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 this person like i i'm legitimately interested in in like richard nixon as a as a person and less of a meme which is fascinating. I didn't think a movie would do that to me. So I'm I'm yeah, I would recommend Nixon cuz I think it'd be an interesting watch for someone. But yeah. There we go. Yeah. Those are our opinions. I think so. Yeah. Um but next week. Well, next week, uh, in between your viewings of Mystic Pizza, we are going to be moving on in Screenwriters Month to one of my favorites. This guy has such an interesting style of the way he writes movies and the types of movies he writes. And one is going to be his classics. One is going to be one of his new releases that apparently has some controversy surrounding whether or not it's good. And I will be interested to see. I have not seen the second of the two before. And I have not Mm -hmm. seen the first of the two in quite a while. We're going to be looking at Charlie Kaufman, very famous screenwriter. And both of his movies we'll be looking at are Adaptation and the new I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Which I am excited about. Uh, Charlie Kaufman is probably one of the most unique screenwriters that's been working. And um, I also like Adaptation. It's Nicolas Cage. (laughs) Nicolas Cage is perfect. Greatest actor of our time. So yeah, I'm I'm kind of hyped. I've never seen. I I'm thinking of ending things. I don't even think I've seen like trailers. I have no idea what that movie is about. So Wait, that one's which, gonna be a pure blind pick. You you mean I'm thinking of ending things? Yeah, I, sorry, okay. I'm thinking of ending things. I've seen nothing about. I don't think I've seen a trailer, a synopsis. David did a pure pick on this one, so I I'm going in completely blind. Yeah, which is gonna be fun to kind of justify my coffin pick. Is like I I was thinking about what to pair. He often either does movies about romance or movies about like really cerebral ways of looking at at grief. And in a way, it's like adaptation is kind of outside of those things uh, in that it's it's just a bizarre story that works for some reason. And again, Nicolas Cage. Nicholas Cage. So it's kind of, I think it'll keep the attention more. And I'm thinking of any things is this new take on the romance angle of Kaufman um, that we traditionally get in the, the very famous Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And you could have paired that one with that, but I wanted to be difficult and, and continue to pair weird movies together. So that's what we're yeah. getting instead of the classics, although adaptation is one of his classics. All that aside... Yeah um yeah it'll also be interesting we get to see something from a little bit earlier in the career and way later so we get to do that that fun comparison is there a decline well based on chinatown and the two jakes there is a decline so we'll see i'm i'm putting out hope for coffin though i think he's a very consistent writer well until then dean um enjoy mr pizza 
That's the last time I'm gonna say it. And I I uh I'll enjoy it eventually when I watch it on Too Obscure for TV, coming out eventually. Eventually, yes. Eventually. I guess uh if you wanna catch up with whenever that next episode of Too Obscure for TV comes out and all of our other stuff, you can find us wherever podcasts are distributed. We put out on Spotify, Radio Public, Overcast. Apparently, we're on Apple Podcasts and a bunch of other things. So, you know, look out for it. It might be there. It might not. I don't know. You you find it. And then we're also on YouTube. Uh, you can find us at our YouTube channel, In The Frame. We post these podcasts as well as other podcasts that we produce. Dean does a lovely podcast, The Film Club with his girlfriend, and they do one movie a week in case you can't handle the double scoop, double feature that we provide you. Also, I have a new podcast coming out because I hate my uh, free time. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, I'm the, uh, I'm now starting a new series called The Film Odyssey Podcast, where me and my brother, my brother who is a giant philosophy and theology nerd, mm. uh, but doesn't watch a lot of movies, is... Um, going to watch every film in the afi top 100 for this season we're going to start from uh, 100 and count them down to number one and it's going to be uh interesting we already recorded a few episodes and they're they're good i i really i really dug them we watched ben hur and my brother and i thought i was going to hate it and that movie is is a straight banger ben hur great deserved every every oscar it got but wait for that that should be coming soon well, we will with bated breath. I mean, that's going to be. We love Randy over here at the Double Feature. <laughs> uh, I guess to continue on, you can keep up with everything we do on our Instagram. That's at dd underscore Double Feature Podcast or Double Feature Picture Show, rather. We will get it right one of these days. That's one day. Dd underscore Double Feature Picture Show. Uh, I think that's it, actually. I think that was the, the, the last thing, so... I think that was the last thing. Yeah. Oh, actually, kind of a new announcement. We'll, we'll probably have started to put this out on, uh, on previous episodes, but, you know, in case you haven't seen it yet, we are putting out a little listener survey that we would like your feedback on for thoughts and opinions and other things about the shows. So, go look for that in the, the episode descriptions and give us your thoughts. If you are a listener who's new, regular, or anywhere in between, we'd love to hear from you. Yes, these really help, uh, and it allows you to actually affect how we do the show. Because if we find out that everyone hates my voice, well, we can always recast me. I'm, I'm replaceable. You are the puppet master. Yeah, totally. Well, but yeah, everybody. With that, uh, you know, I am not a crook. I'll uh, see you guys later. See you. Peace.